So, I'm writing a novel. Is a behind-the-scenes, one-man reality show sharing the experience of writing my next book, a sword and sorcery novel, from first ideas all the way through to publication. It can be lonely writing a novel, and I'd love some company. I'm hoping through the podcast you'll hang out with me while I'm doing this crazy thing. I'll be sharing with you how I write, how I'm trying to improve my writing, the wide spectrum of thoughts and feelings I have when writing a novel, and anything else that makes sense to share, like creative influences or reading recommendations. So I'm writing a novel (laughs) should be of interest to fans of speculative fiction, fantasy or sword and sorcery in particular, people who write or want to write, people who don't write but are curious what it's like to write a novel, Similarly, people who just like to learn about process, you know, fans of like, how did this get made? How do people do this thing? You know, type shows. And anybody who reads, really. Depending on your level of experience with writing, you may learn some useful stuff. Please tell me if you do. But I want to stress that this isn't a teaching podcast. I'm not standing above you on a podium dispensing perfected wisdom. It's more like I'm sitting across from you at like a cafe, bar, maybe the other end of a park bench, sharing a continually evolving process, project, and person. I would like to stress you don't have to be a fan of sword and sorcery to enjoy this show, though you may become a fan over the course of it. And if you don't recognize an author or novel I mentioned, don't worry. If necessary, I'll explain why it's relevant. Otherwise, it's just some flavor that you can look up on your own or wait for me to talk about in greater detail another time. Trust me, I can't stand the idea of cultural gatekeeping. I want this podcast to be as inclusive as possible. A lot of uh, eyes in what I just said there. But who is I? Who's Oliver Brackenbury? It's me! (laughs) Maybe I should say a little more about myself before I get into discussing the new novel, The Sword and Sorcery, Novel in Progress. I grew up around the corner from a five-story deep Cold War bunker, and I currently live not too far away from a popular 1,815.4-foot tower in Toronto. When I pitch myself professionally, I say, I'm a politically conscious genre writer with a sense of humor, which is a perfectly natural human sentence to use in conversation. And <laughs> I uh, I would say, yeah, you know, it feels funny marketing yourself always, but uh, I would say I stand by that. You know, I, I am politically conscious in my writing. I tend to, I, I try not to just go on like, you know, here's what I think is right, kind of like monologues, those suck. But inevitably, things I'm thinking about uh, to do with how society works or how I wish it did or didn't do find their way into my stories. Genre writer, well, of course, that means I like to write in kind of heightened realities. So, you know, fantasy, sci-fi, crime dramas, um, horror, of course. And sense of humor, well, yeah, I mean, I, I just think even in the darkest of stories, you need to have the occasional light moment or even outright just like belly laugh because I don't think you should play entirely on like the heavy end of the piano, so to speak. Otherwise, it just turns into a dirge without any lighter notes mixed in there. But, okay, you know, I'm going to be telling about myself a lot, so let's keep going. Uh, What about the new novel, that sword and sorcery novel? Let's start with the title, something I think people really respond to. It's called, get this, Untitled Sword and Sorcery Novel. Okay, I'm probably going to want to change that. Probably. However, uh, there's definitely more to say about the genre I have chosen, sword and sorcery, and 
If you want to go really deep on it, I would recommend an excellent book called Flame and Crimson, A History of Sword and Sorcery by Brian Murphy. It is the first, but certainly not the last book I'm going to mention that is kind of an influence uh, or even point of direct reference uh, in some ways uh, for the book I'm writing. In his book, Brian identifies six basic elements of sword and sorcery. Not every story has to have all six, but, you know, these are things you tend to encounter in sword and sorcery stories. I'm not going to be a jerk and, like, read his book into the public record, give it away, you know, or whatever, but I will work through these six points and give you my personal take and why I like them. The first is men and women of action. Doesn't mean you have to be a big muscle-bound brute, but you can't be really passive or powerless, you know? You're you're driven by yourself. You're not godlike or divinely fated for some great destiny, you know? Sword and sorcery heroes don't always make it. <laughs> yeah, sometimes they die in back alleys or whatever. And yeah, like, I, I just think they're really dynamic. So of course, you know, that's, that's entertaining. Number two is dark and dangerous magic. Yeah, in sword and sorcery, magic tends to be very frightening and often the provenance of villains or just friggin' weirdos that kind of leave the hero scratching their head. So yeah, I find that far more entertaining than the more uh, highly codified way of handling magic where there's schools and maybe a rock-paper-scissors approach to things. With sword and sorcery magic, it always feels like anything could happen. The third item on the list is personal and or mercenary motivations. Like SNS heroes, they tend to, even if they're sort of caught up in some sort of huge sweeping epic fantasy type story, the focus is very sort of small, very ground up, very much around them and what they're getting up to. And often they're just trying to survive or get a bit of money. Maybe they're even kind of jerky, like Kugel from uh, the Jack Vance Dying Earth novels. He's a complete bastard. But there's a spectrum, you know, it's not always jerks. Uh, it's just that they're, you know, they're not Johnny do-goods who get up in the morning asking how they can do good. It, it tends to be something a bit more relatable to how we all try and get through our day. Item number four is horror and probably specifically Lovecraftian horror influences. You know, a lot of classic sword and sorcery authors also wrote horror. And as it would happen, I have also written horror, so I'm hoping that will help me out. I find that the horror elements of sword and sorcery can provide a really refreshing contrast with the sort of, you know, I've got a sword and I'm chopping off ten dudes' heads situations. You know, it further grounds the heroes. Uh, you know, if you've read classic Conan stories, you'll experience the fact that you know, he's like, oh, there's a man with a sword, I'll deal with him. But then as soon as he feels that there's something supernatural around the corner, well, it's not that he runs for the hills per se, but he definitely feels a lot more like you or I would feel encountering some sort of godforsaken weird shape in the shadows that can't be explained by a rational mind. So again, I suppose we're coming back to the fact that I find sword and sorcery a lot more relatable and a lot more unpredictable than some other variations of fantasy. A fifth frequently encountered aspect of sword and sorcery is that it is told in short, episodic episodes. These are brisk stories thrumming with urgency, and there is world building, and there's, you know, it's just, it's often given to you in sort of these short, evocative bursts and powerful sentences rather than, you know, your. The thing that a lot of us associate with fantasy and science fiction, which are phone book length dumps of exposition, letting you know every little detail about the world and its tax codes or whatever. And I've enjoyed those. 
You know, I don't want to poo-poo anybody who enjoys those. But I find, especially as I get a little older, I'm just more interested in having little evocative flashes of something that lets me imagine a greater picture if I want to. Speaking of the world, of the story and shaping it, that brings us to item number six, which is a lot of sword and sorcery stories are somewhat inspired by history. This doesn't mean that they are necessarily set in a historical context. That's kind of its own thing, parallel to sword and sorcery, and a lot of sword and sorcery writers were inspired by excellent, fast-moving historical fiction like the works of Harold Lamb. But true sword and sorcery is ahistorical. It's just that it has like a rootedness in our history, taking bits and pieces that make it a lot more grounded, you know, kind of giving like a little veil of realism, you know, that you wouldn't see in like a fairy tale or a myth. And again, I dig it. I tend to like stories that are grounded, not that I haven't enjoyed particularly loopy out there stuff like The King of Elfland's Daughter. Oh, and there's a seventh quality I forgot, which is that the heroes in sword and sorcery stories are almost always outsiders, even when you would think they're on top of things. Like there's the Michael Moorcock uh, hero, Elric of Melibone, who is the emperor of his race. So how's that an outsider? Well, thing is, his race of uh, sort of vaguely elvish type people are really just complete sociopaths, and he's the only one with even a little bit of a conscience, and that's what makes him an outsider, even though he rules them. A lot of us take stories about outsiders without necessarily having been one or living like one, because we've all felt like one here and there through our lives, and I'm certainly no exception, which I guess brings us to my personal history and connection with sword and sorcery, which is, uh, you know, it definitely starts at a young age. It's always hard to remember exactly what was the first of any kind of speculative fiction I read, because I was reading it from... Oh man, almost almost before I was forming memories, practically. I, I, I was a very young reader. Uh, you know, the very first thing I remember reading was a Batman comic, and I must have been all of three and a half going by when it came out. But my sword and sorcery experiences, I, I definitely saw the Conan movie as a kid, and I remember reading the John Buscema, I hope I pronounced that correctly, sorry John, uh, John Buscema Savage Sword of Conan magazine-sized black and white comics, a lot of which... Uh, drew from original Conan stories, so that was kind of cool. And I really liked those, uh, but somewhere around age 11 or 12, I got it in my head, you know, I'm growing up, I'm becoming a man. And so I did a couple of things I regretted. One of them was I gave all but a handful of my comics away to my friends. Sigh. And the other thing was I got it in my head that you had to choose between being a fan of fantasy or science fiction. And I don't know why, but I decided I had to choose science fiction because it was more sophisticated, whatever that means. And this meant I kind of stopped reading most fantasy novels and checking out most fantasy movies and that kind of thing. But I did actually kind of keep poking my nose back into sword and sorcery here and there. And I think it's because of that stuff I mentioned about how it's more, it's more grounded, it's more relatable. You know, even when superheroes, I read them all, but I tended to be drawn to Batman. And then as soon as I discovered Green Arrow, I was drawn to him even more because unlike Batman, he wasn't rich, you know, but the guys without powers, the guys who were fighting at street level, you know, that kind of thing really appealed to me. Years later, I got involved with the Merrill Collection in Toronto, which the Merrill Collection is a real resource for writers and readers. And it is, well, in a nutshell, it is the Western Hemisphere's largest publicly accessible archive of genre 
fiction. If you want to see a first edition of Dracula, you can check that out. But boy, there's so much more with over 80,000 items. And at first, I just used that archive as a quiet place to work. Then I got to know the employees, and they introduced me to all kinds of authors and individual works I wasn't really familiar with. And I rediscovered my old friend, Conan in the form of some of the actual novels. Which, you know, I thought, well, I should read the original short stories and stuff, right? So yeah, that got me down a path. And then I started listening to the Appendix N Book Club podcast, which is excellent. And I highly recommend it. Wonderful book club type podcast. And that got me thinking even harder about those old Conans and stuff I used to read in comic book format. So I thought, okay, well, let's keep exploring. Let's go beyond that. And as I further read and studied the sword and sorcery genre, the more I loved it, the more I wanted to play with it. I was so delighted by how flexible and, and anything can happen it could be. And yet it simultaneously was grounded and not bound too tightly by genre conventions. I've already mentioned horror. But, you know, there's there's sword and sorcery and then there's sword and blaster. You know, there's sci-fi that gets in the mix sometimes and it's not considered a big deal. It's not like, oh, my God, look at this sci-fi mixed in. It's just like, yeah, here's another thing in this cool story. So, yeah, I fell in love with it over the last couple of years. I've been reading as much as I can. I've been plowing through sort of the big names, like I say, Howard, Liber, Moorcock and more, you know, C.L. Moore, actually, <laughs> Moore, uh, Jack Vance, a whole bunch of other people I could list off. And of course, this eventually made me want to really write some sword and sorcery. Hey, remember that novel I keep mentioning? Right. To tell you the story of that, I'm going to turn to something which is going to feature heavily in these little chats of ours for a while, certainly during the initial outlining stage of the novel. This is a notebook, a regular-sized moleskin notebook, although I don't think you have to write in a moleskin, whatever, write on a napkin, but I like this guy in part because of his ridiculous cover. It's covered in denim? <laughs> Why not? Make it real Canadian, real Canadian tuxedo with a denim notebook. And... In it, I already have about 150 pages of handwritten notes of all kinds of stuff, you know, character breakdowns, research, outlines of stories, of course, story ideas, and stray thoughts. You gotta have pages that are just there for whatever the heck comes up, right? The last type of entry that I have in here is a project diary. Now, the concept of a project diary is something that was taught to me by a Canadian screenwriter named Karen Walton. She is a tremendous community leader and mentor figure in the Canadian screenwriting community. And what she taught me was it's a good idea sometimes to sit down and just write a diary entry. But instead of it being about, you know, your hopes and dreams and life and whatever, it's about that stuff specifically as it relates to the project. You know, how do you feel about the project right now? Where is it going? What are the problems? What are the things you like? And so on. It's a really good way of grounding yourself before going on to the next piece. And so I'm going to summarize and discuss the ideas contained within the initial project diary entry of the Denim Notebook from January 31st, 2020. Up top, I talk about how, uh, you know, guiding my future self when I review this, <laughs> as I am now, uh, I got myself through to where I began the project proper, how in 2018 and 2019, I greatly enjoyed digging through the Appendix N reading list. The Appendix N reading list being a list of authors and works that are all like speculative fiction that inspired Gary Gygax when he co-created the world's first and most famous role-playing game. So yeah, 2019, I try to write my own Appendix N sword and sorcery type story, resulting in a short story called Vo, V-O-E. 
And though at the time I was a little unsure, you know, how much it fit the genre because I just kind of plowed forward. It was more important to me to just try and write something first and learn as I went along. I liked Vo and the character in it, who is also named Vo, so much. I, I wanted to write more short stories starring her with a story I'd written serving as like an origin story or first chapter, which it already kind of read as. At first, I thought it would be fun to write all kinds of short stories about the same character and submit them all over, just like the classic sword and sorcery authors and many other speculative fiction authors of days gone by. However, I am lucky enough to count author J.M. Fry as a friend, and she told me how today's short story market really isn't like the heyday of the appendix and reading list books, roughly 1920 to 1977, where you could write a whole bunch of short stories all about one character and submit them all over. Nowadays, the right situation gets complicated if you want to bundle those stories into a novel to sell, and also it can look like you only have one idea. So I write in the diary here, okay, I'm recalibrating. Now, what am I going to do instead? Oh, I know. I'm going to write a novel composed of short stories, which is what's called a short story cycle, where you follow a single character through a period of their life or even their entire life as told in a bunch of little short stories that can be read on their own, but all together add up to something greater you know, than they are individually. I was partially inspired to do that format because of reading a bunch of the classics, like Fritz Leiber's Fafford and Grey Mouser series, which follows his two plucky thieves over many years of their life while in the Middle Age, or Conan, but not Conan. <laughs> what I mean by that, and why I'm kind of chuckling, is there is a notorious series of Conan books, which on the one hand are responsible for things, arguably, like the Schwarzenegger film that most of us know, and the fact that anybody really knows who Conan is, but also cause a lot of controversy. They were edited and put together and written in most parts by Lynn Carter and L. Sprague de Camp, who many people will say, as writers, they were good editors. <laughs> they got a hold of the rights to Robert Howard's Conan stories somewhere in the 50s, I think. And then in the 60s, they decided to ride the wave of Tolkien's, you know, exploding fantasy wide open again for everybody with Lord of the Rings by publishing them. But they didn't just publish the old stories. They found any scrap of paper upon which Robert Howard might have written sword. And then they would like add 8,000 words and call it, you know, a Lynn Carter and Robert Howard collaboration. They would also take stories by Howard that were not Conan stories and that were set in like real life, quote unquote, you know, ancient Egypt or whatever, and then just add some wizards and monsters and crap and call it Conan. <laughs> the big thing, though, that really seemed to irk a lot of people was that they would take these like posthumous collaborations, as it were, along with the originals and edit them all together into one big linear narrative, which as far as anyone can tell, was never Howard's intention. His first story about Conan, Conan was actually kind of like late middle age and he had had many adventures and was a king. You know, not, not, not the beginning, not when he was like a young man first coming south from the barbarous nation of Samaria to see what's up with these civilized nations. And remember what I said about how they were better editors than writers, certainly Lynn Carter, I would argue. So yeah, a lot of these stories were kind of sucky or they'd be pretty good and then all of a sudden turn really terrible halfway through because, oh hey, it was a scrap that Carter had decided to finish for Howard. And on top of everything else... Like I say, these stories were never designed to be strung together, and so you got these really clunky, italicized paragraphs sitting, you know, just above the beginning of each story, where Lynn Carter would write something like, yeah, you know how at the end of the last story, Conan got the treasure and the girl and rode off or whatever? 
Yeah. Anyway, uh, the girl decided she uh, doesn't like him and went away, and he uh, lost all the gold uh, gambling. And uh, then he went 3,000 miles to the left, so that gets him to the beginning of this story where I need him to be. <laughs> Super clunky. So why would I be inspired by something that like I kind of laugh at, and I think the methods are kind of, you know, clunky to even despicable with some of the posthumous collaboration? Well, I get the desire to try and have your cake and eat it too, both writing short episodic stories that stand alone, but wanting to string them together like pearls into a grand narrative. I just think it's best done, you know, as the actual plan from the beginning and entirely with your own material. So using that short story I wrote as the first pearl in the string, that's what I would like to do with Vo. you know? I, I continue in the diary about how I see this being roughly 15 years of her life, from age 19-ish to 34, 35, and how the end of it all, whatever's going to be in between uh, the beginning and the end, the end is going to be her final confrontation with this wizard that trapped her people on the island that she escapes by the end of the short story, vowing to kill said wizard. But who will she be by the time, you know, 15 odd years later, she finally catches up with him? I then continue in the diary entry about how I have an idea for how I want to show her to you, the reader, certainly for at least the first third big chunk of the novel, which is to give her a different companion for each story. And in each story, you'll get to know Vo a little better through their point of view and their experiences with her until we get to the grand finale, which at this point I imagined as being entirely through her point of view. I also really liked the idea of Vo eventually moving past wanting to be a quote-unquote hero and transforming you know, the very narrative of the novel to something like Ursula K. Le Guin's Carrier Bag Theory of Fiction. Now, the Carrier Bag Theory of Fiction, actually, I'm going to record a whole thing just on that, but right here, I'll, all you need to know is it was an almost anti-sword and sorcery essay she released in the late 80s talking about how we really need to stop giving so much primacy to killing conflict-driven, always linear narratives and maybe look more at occasionally non-linear, well, not killing obsessed narratives. Maybe, you know, that's too much. I start to wonder in the diary here. Maybe I should save that for a sequel novel if I get there. Maybe I can just have her decide to go down that path right before or right after her victory over the wizard. I'm still not sure, you know, back in January of last year. But it does feel approximately right. And past Oliver here finishes the entry by writing about how he really just wants to focus on telling the individual stories as well as possible. There's some worry at this point about muddying things by trying too aggressively to thread one big story arc through all of them. Besides, if Vo gets put through sufficient hell, then it shouldn't be hard to sell her wanting to leave the hero, violent life, whatever, behind, right? That's it for the diary entry. Here, I think we can already see some intriguing tensions in the meta-narrative of me writing the book, because most sword and sorcery stories are told in a way that they stand alone, yet like Lynn Carter and L. Sprague de Camp, I crave the grand narrative, yet I want the stories to stand on their own, yet I want Vo to grow and change over the course of the book. Yet, sword and sorcery heroes, with a few exceptions, like Fafford and Grey Mouser that I mentioned, tend to stay pretty much exactly the same. That's part of the promise. You know, each time you run into, say, a Michael Moorcock Elric story, Elric is basically the same guy. He might have had some more crappy things happen in his life. Uh, he he kind of suffers a lot, that guy. But it's Elric. You always know what you're going to get. How am I going to reconcile these tensions? Well, we'll find out. Yeah, okay, so I think that's it for the diary. Let's move on. 
to the story, Vaux. And the last thing I think I'll share with you today, that short story, like I say, it's it's about a woman named Vaux. What else do you need to know? Well, maybe a little bit. Okay, so the character is a big Gwendolyn Christie type, you know, Rosie the Riveter type, you know, brawny woman, daughter of two craftspeople, a blacksmith, uh, her mom and her father is what's called a dyer, someone who makes dyes, if you can believe it. I like the idea of a, a guy who's all about color being her dad. Frankly, I also like her having craftspeople for parents because I can relate to that, having a pair of goldsmiths for my mom and dad. They live in a village on the other side of a very far northern island, kind of like the Shetlands from our world. And on their half of the island is one people, and the other half of the island is the other people, with whom they have a terrible blood feud going back a few hundred years. Shortly after Vo's parents die, when she is still a teenager, freshly 19, she decides that she wants to become a hero, like the ones in the stories she was raised on, and she wants to travel to get off this island. But it's not so simple. Ultimately, she seeks help from someone from the other side of the island, a shepherd, to whom she actually lies about being from far away. And by the end of the story, of course, they have achieved that. They're on a boat, they're rowing away. But uh, the shepherd doesn't get to continue on to the mainland. Vo does, however. And you can see why a story ending with someone in a boat going off into the distance might make you wonder, where, where does she land? What else does she get up to? Does she become a hero like she wants to be? Well, it's not so simple. Uh, you may recall I mentioned earlier, Sword and Sorcery is not prone to having characters that have square jaws and are Johnny Do-Goods. Vo may think that's what she wants. She may think she wants it for selfless reasons, but it's not that kind of story. Off we go into the grander narrative, the novel, with its cycle of short stories connecting up to tell you of about 15 years of her life. I see the first third or so of the book being about her trying to help others and become that hero. But as I say, it doesn't really go that way. I like the idea of the middle of the book being more to do with her trying to live for herself rather than for others. And that's a very good time for her for a while until eventually she kind of goes a little too far into living for herself and it bites her in the butt, leading to the final third of the book, where, spoiler, sorry, this is going to be full of spoilers, I'm going to be telling you about everything, so yeah, <laughs> uh, into the final third of the book, where she is the unwitting pawn of a supernatural sort of patron. Uh, maybe patrons, I haven't decided. I'll discuss that more in detail down the road. So yeah, that's the basic shape of it, and I would like to share with you one last little piece of inside baseball here. See, I actually got a story editor to work with me on the short story to help me try and improve it. And I have the notes folded up, a little printout here, uh, stuffed in the back pocket of that denim moleskin notebook I mentioned. And I'd like to share it with you. These notes are on what was the sixth draft of the short story. Currently, the short story slash, I guess, first chapter of this short story cycle is on draft 10. All right, time to share with you my soft, squishy underbelly by reading the feedback. Your story is solid, competent, interesting, and contains some great lines. I see two distinct areas you could work on. The first is technical, the second is thematic. Technique. You tend to tell readers that the characters are talking, and give the discussions content instead of having the actual conversation. The explanation removes immediacy and the sense of forward momentum. It's passive, pulling readers out of the now of the story. Try putting in the actual dialogue instead. For instance, on page one, Rock Shepherd wobbled with the effort. He told her she was no queen. Consider instead, 
Rock Shepherd wobbled with the effort. You're no queen, he said, or spash or snarled, etc. Dialogue is active. If you switch to a more active mode, the story will become more dynamic. Nuance can be added in dialogue tags rather than as part of the general description. This isn't so much show-don't-tell advice as it is less telling, more doing. Yeah, they were very right about this, and I can tell you it was a curious effect of me kind of compensating for something. See, I write both screenplays and prose. Many is the time someone has read my prose and said, oh, this, you, you know, I can, t- I can really tell you're a screenwriter. And many is the time someone has read my screenplays and said, oh, I can really tell you write books. <laughs> so what do you do? Uh, I think of screenplays as being far more dialogue driven, and so this thing that she's describing came out of the fact that I was overcompensating for that by trying to remove the amount of dialogue. So maybe people wouldn't tell me it reads like a screenplay. (sighs) Okay, the other thing. Theme. Thematically speaking, though, is timely and apt, but, and please understand this is a description, not a criticism, your story doesn't add anything unique or different to the ongoing cultural conversation. There are no major observations, nor is there a conclusion of any kind. Again, that's not meant to be a criticism. After all, the human tendency to be stupidly stubborn and bigoted is also not new, nor is there an end in sight, but it means your story lacks impact. You could add impact with emotional shading at the end, and that shading could go in either direction. E.g., word choice can hint that they'll choose to trust or distrust one another. The tonal shift will likely have to come from Krog, the shepherd, by the way, Simply by choosing to be Starla, Vo has proven that she's capable of change. And uh, it doesn't have to be blatant. Or you could choose to go that more blatant route and insert a cogent slash profound insight into the importance of allowing behavior to evolve, or the inevitable fate of not doing so. Frankly, if you get that message into your story, you'll have less need to provide a conclusion one way or the other. Each of your readers will provide it for themselves. Okay, so that's all the feedback from the story editor. And on this second point, I would definitely say she was correct. I'd like to think I've addressed the issue by the current draft, 10, back here on draft 6. Yeah, again, it was a bad decision made out of trying to correct for something preemptively. See, I was very very concerned about it being like a message story and having a character basically turn to the camera and say, you know what, people just need to get along. Because ultimately, you know, Vo and the shepherd, Krog, have to work together, even when she's bullshitting him at the beginning, saying, I'm a woman named Starla from far away. It's still under this idea of trying to find a way to be able to work with someone who's from the other side of the island, who hates her people, yada yada. So I ended on this kind of non-note where they work together to undo this terrible magic that's been trapping their peoples on the island. And then we end with them in the little rowing boat, moving away from the island, the first people to have done so in centuries, And the question is, well, okay, they work together to overcome their goal to get out of this story, right? Now what? And I just ended on this kind of thing of like, you know, can a single noble act at the climax of a short story undo centuries of bigotry? Maybe not. Uh, Who knows? Uh, Pan out to the stars, zoom out, fade to black, whatever, play the soundtrack. I didn't make a definitive point. So yeah, that needed to be fixed. That was good feedback, and I I think I have dealt with it. Like the earlier technique thing, it was me preemptively trying to head off something at the pass, almost operating from a place of fear. And if there's one thing I feel is very true in life, 
as well as in writing, it's that making decisions, unless you're getting out of the way of a speeding car, making decisions based on fear often, if not always, takes you down the wrong path. Huh. Sounds like a good theme for a short story, eh? <laughs> or maybe a short story part of a short story cycle. Maybe uh, like a novel, but uh, I, uh, yeah, 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 okay, all right, all over a good one. We tied it together. Yeah, we did it. Okay. <laughs> there you go, the origin story for my untitled sword and sorcery novel, where I don't want to just imitate or go through the motions of an established genre. I want to update it and take it further while still keeping it recognizable as sword and sorcery. It's going to be a tightrope walk for sure, and I hope you'll join me for the whole thing. Okay, yeah, I covered a lot of stuff today. You know, who am I? What's the novel? What's the genre? Where did it all come from? And so on. Yeah, I think future episodes will probably be a little shorter because they'll get to be a bit more, you know, narrow focused and I won't have to completely reintroduce everything every time. I'm thinking 20 minutes-ish, like bite size, but we can see how it evolves together. Yeah, thank you, by the way, for giving me your time. Super appreciate it, and I hope you continue to do so. So I'm writing a novel features original music by Gloria Guns and is hosted by yours truly, Oliver Brackenbury. If you'd like to submit a question, then please email it to so I'm writing a novel at gmail.com. Bonus points if you record yourself and send me an mp3 I can cut into the show. Doesn't have to be fancy, using your phone is fine, just keep it clear and concise. You can also holler at the show on Twitter, look for at so I'm writing a novel. Please consider sharing the show with anybody who might like it. Word of mouth is how these things happen, let's be honest. Leaving a review on iTunes is also helpful. And check out patreon.com slash so I'm writing a novel. Patrons get to have their names listed in the thanks in the final novel. They listen to episodes of the podcast a week early and even enjoy a bonus podcast called So I Wrote a Novel, where I read and comment on chapters of previous works, starting with my first novel, Junkyard Leopard. Thanks for hanging out with me, and I'll see you next time when I will be discussing the character of Vo, my protagonist. Where did she come from? How did I design her? How does that all come together? Bye.